Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile. slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the part two of the Chechen War. In this part, we'll take a look at the personal accounts of those who served there and of those who endured through all of this. Just as in the previous part, we looked at the chronology of events and how it all ended. And um, this is what I wouldn't recommend um, you really listen to together with your kids or whatnot, because uh, this really isn't going to be that nice and probably is going to be a bit. Um, bit harmful to your ears, and how sometimes it gets me a lot of nightmares, to be honest. For starters, remember the term bispridjel. We've mentioned that in a couple episodes here on the show, and you, by this point, should know what that means if you listen to any previous episodes about the prison life. For those who haven't really, it means literally no limits, but more likely it means acting outside the rules, often used as, well, prison rules acting outside the rules violently and with impunity, often translates to excesses, or atrocities sometimes that, again, mostly used um, in prison context where someone living outside of these prison laws is, is said to be acting from bispridjel. It's also the term that Russian soldiers have used to describe their actions in Chechnya, in the Second Chechen War at least, because that's the people that I actually spoke with. And... Um, yeah, a conscript who was 21 years old at the time stated, quote, Without Bespridjel, we could have gotten nowhere in Chechnya. We had to be cruel to them. Otherwise, we would achieve nothing. Kinda shows where, where this whole thing is gonna go, you see. See, when Russia launched their new war against separatist rebels in its Republic of Chechnya, or when the separatist rebels launched the war, I'm not really taking sides here as Chechen government due to kind of total inability of Oskarov himself and everything. There's also quite a lot guilty about all this mess starting up. And as you've heard from the first war, it was already filtration camps and nasty things. There was a bunch of Russian and Western human rights organizations who collected a lot of testimony from victims about human rights abuses committed by Russian servicemen against Chechen civilians and suspected rebel fighters. Yeah, these people are ready to give interviews sometimes to me, to other journalists at a time. And in all those interviews, 
everything really matched the picture painted in these human rights reports, and... And yeah, the men who served there? Oh yes, they, the men freely acknowledged that acts considered war crimes under international law not only did take place, but were also very common. In fact, most of them admitted committing such acts themselves, everything from looting to summary executions to torture. This is, uh, this is what we're going to have in this part. I'm going to also use kind of a bit longer story from how a Chechen journalist experienced this war in his own city at the time, if we get to it. But, um, yeah, this is why I really didn't want to put this part uh, together with the chronology. Yeah, don't, truly don't let kids listen to this, okay? But... I think for you who might be interested in this, please don't don't consider this torture porn. Consider this a lesson on how this can happen everywhere and um, why it's important to speak about all these studies, you know. Just, you know, seriously, for your consideration. There was Bespridgel all the time, one soldier stated. You can't let it get to you. The servicemen stated that atrocities were not directly ordered from above. Instead, they resulted from a Russian military culture that glorifies ardor in battle, portrays the enemy as inhuman, and um, had no effective system of accountability. United States Army is based on professionalism, stated the pirate trooper who served alongside United States troops as a peacekeeper in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Our army is based on fervor. And um, this is just the beginning. Russian officials, including the Kremlin's war spokesman, Sergei Yastremzinsky, by the time, actually criticized the human rights reports at the time, stating that they were riddled with rumors and rebel propaganda. And officials often blame reported atrocities on what they described as, quote, rebel fighters dressed as Russian soldiers. But they did acknowledge that some human rights violations did occur, and um, obviously they had taken all the measures and steps to curb them. And an uh, interesting quote from the era was, <clears throat> Chechens are Russian citizens, for whose sake the operation was undertaken in the first place. Yastremzinsky stated in an interview, quote, They should be treated according to the same laws as in the rest of Russia. Any violation, regardless of who commits it, must be reviewed by the procurator, and the guilty parties should be punished. End quote. That was the Kremlin's official position, but people who had served at the time... Yeah, they have stated to multiple sources in a lot of ways that things were very different in the ground. In part because of the media coverage at the time presented the Chechen radical Islamists as slave trading, torturing, and beheading people, the soldiers believed the enemy is guilty of far worse atrocities. And although they knew very well that executions and other human rights violations are wrong, they also considered them an avoidable, even necessary part of waging war especially against such a foe. In their view, and in a view of a lot of people who often served in both Soviet and Russian military, and I'm pretty sure that Ukrainian military would also take a similar view into account, or just militaries of our region, I think, human rights workers and other critics are simply squeamish about the nature of war. One of the interesting quotes about this situation was, quote, What rules? What Geneva Conventions? What difference does it make if Russia has signed them? I didn't sign them. None of of my friends signed them. In Russia, these rules didn't work. That was a lieutenant at the time, 
stated this. Perhaps most importantly, the soldiers described a pervasive and powerful culture of impunity in the Russian armed forces. They believed that authorities say one thing in public, but deliberately turned a blind eye to many war crimes. A few of them even stated investigators helped cover up such atrocities, and right or wrong, the soldiers are confident that authorities really never made any serious effort to investigate any misconduct. One of the conscripts from the war stated, You don't make it obvious, and they don't look too hard. Everyone understands that's the way it works. Many of the servicemen admitted having troubled consciousnesses. But like a mantra, most repeated what they had been taught, that whether one likes it or not, going to war means acting with best pridel. Quote, What kind of human rights can there be in wartime? Said a 31-year-old at the time police commando. It's fine to violate human rights within certain limits. And then there's the story of Andre. The main thing is to have them die slowly. You don't want them to die fast. Because a fast death? Ah, that's an easy death. This is from an interview Andre gave from an article in uh, 2000. This is um, one of the things that I gathered from all of this, which was pretty bad. Quote, Andre's pale eyes glow against his tanned skin. He's been home only ten days. He opens and closes kitchen cabinets, searching confusedly for sugar for his tea. I still haven't gotten used to domestic life, he apologizes. He, at the time, had just turned 21. During basic training, he recalls, Red Cross workers came to his base to teach about human rights and the rules of war. They tried to teach us all kinds of nonsense, like that you should treat civilians politely, he says. If you behave politely during wartime, I promise you nothing good will come of it. I don't know about other wars, but in Chechnya, if they don't understand what you say, you have to beat it into them. You need the civilians to fear you. There is no other way. Andrei says the lesson that stuck was the one his commander taught him. How to kill. We caught one guy. He had a fold-up radio antenna. He gave us a name, but when we beat him, he gave us a different name. We found paps in his pockets and hashish. He tried to tell us he was looking for food for his mother. My commander stated, Stick around and I'll teach you how to deal with these guys properly. He took the antenna and began to hit him with it. You could tell by the look in the Chechen's eyes that he knew we were going to kill him. We shot him. There were five of us who shot him. We dumped his body in the river. The river was full of bodies, ours too. Three of our guys washed up without heads. Andrei says he knows that officially Russian troops are supposed to turn all suspected rebels over to military procurators. But in practice, his unit literally took no prisoners. Once they have a bruise, they're already good as dead, Andrei stated. They know they won't make it to the procurator's office, you can see it in their eyes. They never tell us anything, but then again we never ask. We do it out of spite, because if they can torture our soldiers, why shouldn't we torture them? The easiest way, by the way, is just to heat your bayonet over charcoal, and when it's red hot, to put it on their bodies or stab them slowly. You need to make sure they feel as much pain as possible. Ah, the main thing is to have them die slowly. You don't want them to die fast, because a fast death is an easy death. They should get a full treatment. They should get what they deserve. On one hand, it looks like an atrocity, but on the other hand, it's easy to get used to. I killed about nine people this way. I remembered all of them. Hello there. Thank you for tuning in into another episode of The Eastern Border. We are so happy to announce that this episode is brought to you by our friends at russansov.com. 
If you're looking to buy new art, don't forget to use the code Eastern Border for a discount on us. Remember, head over to rusensoft.com and happy shopping! If, however, you want to support our show directly, head over to patreon.com or our website theeasternborder.lv to find out how you can help out. For all things Eastern Border, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Discord. And as always, thank you so much for supporting us. We really appreciate each and every one of you. That's all from me now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs. United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The serviceman say the type and frequency of bispridiel vary significantly from one unit to another. A few stated to various sources that such things never happened in their units, but even they knew of incidents involving other units. Other than looting, which was obviously the most important crime of all times, the most reported crime that was reported to every source imaginable was the execution of suspected rebels. One officer who served as police commando stated, We called it taking them to police station. The nearest police station was 300 kilometers away. In reality, they wouldn't make it farther to the next corner. Nearly all of the servicemen interviewed, and it was like, I've read reports from Russian sources, interviewed a person myself, got studies from relatives who fought there, Los Angeles Times interviewed some people, Reuters did, uh, Al Jazeera, everyone who ever interviewed these people, because back then, in the early 2000s, you could. Yeah, yeah, literally every source you could find is just, just the fact that no one really bothered to um, take in prisoners. After all, for these people who served there, oh yeah, that was the safest thing to do. Again, from another police commando, quote, We had a clear-cut policy with prisoners. We didn't take any. To be more precise, we did take one prisoner once and tried to hand him over to the procurator's office, but one of our men was wounded on the way, and then we decided, well, you know, no more prisoners, what's the point? We already risk our lives greatly when we fight against them. Why risk them again to save the lives of fighters and give them the chance to go to jail when what they deserve is death? You can carry out the sentence right on the spot anyways. And uh, the summary executions didn't just take place against suspected fighters. 
one of the army officers recounted how he drowned a family of five. Four women and a middle-aged man in their own well. Oh, this is going to be a lovely... Ep- I, I mean, I hope you understand why I really did split this in two parts, honestly. Quote, You should not believe people who say Chechens are not being exterminated. In this Chechen war, it's done by everyone who can do it. There are situations when it's not possible, but when an opportunity presents itself, very few people miss it. I don't know what is this, Pespridil or not, but it is war. A war is a very cruel thing, and the matters of life and death should not be judged by civilian standards. Mutilation of corpses and torture were reportedly, you know, less frequent, but clearly were common in a number of units. A lot of servicemen reported that, yeah, some members of Russian unit special forces cut off the ears of their victims in a revenge ritual. Quote, Cutting ears may seem savage to some, but it has its explanations, said one commander. It's an old tradition among the special forces. If you cut off the ears of the enemy in order to later lay them on the tombstone on your friend who was killed in the war. It's not a manifestation of barbarism, it's just our way of telling our deceased mate, rest in peace, you've been avenged. Oh, hmm. And then there's the story of Boris. Another fun one, really. Again, report from what he said to the newspapers at the time. Boris' body was both built and broken by years of boxing. His face, hands and torso have the strength and subtlety of cinder blocks. Since he returned from the war zone, he has had trouble sleeping at night. Quote, Sometimes I fear it will not be possible for me to control myself, especially after a couple of drinks. The ex-police commando says, quote, I wake up in a cold sweat, all enraged, and all I can see is dead bodies, blood and screams. At that moment, I'm ready to go as far as it takes. I think if I were given weapons and grenades, I would head out and start mopping up my own hometown. He also stated that he could no longer remember all the people he killed. Quote, Oh, I killed a lot. Wouldn't touch women or children as long as they didn't fire at me. But I would kill all the men I met during mopping up operations. I didn't feel sorry for them one bit. They deserved it. I wouldn't even listen to the pleas or see the tears of their women when they asked me to spare their men. I simply took them aside and killed them. When he came home from Chechnya, he resigned from his unit. He says he's happy to be in a regular job, and he's trying to forget the war. But there are some things he can't forget. I remember a Chechen female sniper. She didn't have any chance of making it to the authorities. We just tore her apart with two armored personal carriers, having tied her ankles with steel cables. There was a lot of blood, but the boys needed it, really. After this, a lot of the boys calmed down. Justice was done, and that was the most important thing for them. Oh, yeah, we would also throw fighters off the helicopters before landing. The trick was to pick the right altitude. We didn't want them to die right away. We wanted them to suffer before they died. Maybe it's cruel, but in a war, that's almost the only way to dull the fear and sorrow of losing your friends. Notions of provocation and revenge are central to these these stories and to this mindset of these people who serve there. In the culture... On the Russian military, a man not only has the right, but is also honor-bound to respond to a provocation. When one of these servicemen is killed or mistreated by the enemy, his comrades must take revenge. Nearly all of the people who recounted incidents of this Bespridel described them as revenge attacks for the deaths of their comrades. An army officer stated, again, quote, Oh, and we have a lot of these studies here. Like I said, for your consideration. When you see your mates drop down on the ground, 
when you take your dead and wounded to the hospital, this is when the hatred rises with you. And the hatred is against all Chechens, not just the individual enemies who killed your friends. This is where the best predial starts. All of this basically just continues on from the first war. A major reason, by the way, of all of this is the blood-curling act of the Chechen fighters themselves, who, again, were extremely radicalized. Now, <laughs> let me remind you that although previously in between the wars, in the first war, you know, the history of abuse had ran rampant. And they had fought against all this for years. And now let me remind you, though, however, that, yeah, many of these people ran brutal kidnapping gangs, abducted Russian hostages, some of them were tortured and killed, and there's a lot of broadcast gory footage of Chechen atrocities, well, allegedly Chechen atrocities, but a lot of them actually did commit atrocities, except that you wouldn't, wouldn't find their stories at all these days, and um, any Chechen right now, even Johar Dodaya from the First War, is, is basically declared an automatic terrorist everywhere, and, um, and nowhere else on this planet, I suppose, at least in the post-Civet sphere, you can see this one man's freedom fighter, other man's terrorist. Because, oh yeah, there were mutilations and beheadings. And one of the police commandos often stated that, why should human rights be respected from only one direction? It's always from our side, never from theirs. And yeah, Russia's human rights critics do not even dispute the monstrosity of the crimes committed by Chechens, and if you put something in there and Chechen war atrocities, yeah, you know, if you've seen ISIS, You've seen a lot of that. There was humiliations and murderings and beheadings. And I don't want to paint this all as just one-sided because, again, well, the trick is that I only got the Russian soldiers' report of them because at this point, because of how Ramzan Kadyrov runs the whole thing and how Chechens who live abroad often get murdered at their own homes, I sadly have to state that... Um, I just couldn't get a hand on all of them, but, well, Chechen terrorists did take a lot of hostages involving kids, specifically in 2004, and from the period of 2004 to 2009, there were a lot of acts of terrorism by these radical Islamist people, there was the Nordos theater, there was Beslan tragedy where, like, monstrous things happened, just so you know, just because I'm telling you how... The Russian side operated because we have the Russian thing of the whole account. Just remember that you could probably replace what these Russian fighters are saying from the other side. It's just that I only got one side stories of all the situation, but the other side was just as bad. This truly isn't a state that, oh, look, evil Russians, good Chechens. No, 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 no. no. Chechens were just as bad. Everyone was just as bad. It's just that, well, replace Russian soldier with Chechen soldier, and you'll probably get the same story. Of course, at the time, researchers with Human Rights Watch pointed out that according to international law, Russia was obliged to respect human rights, regardless of abuses committed by the other side. But again, a lot of military analysts would really, really say, and, well, me too, haven't seen it, not in this situation, but other sides reporting from them. Yeah, that's really, really fucking hard. To be honest, all the soldiers 
to face the war, and I'll quote Alexander E. Zhilin, a retired Air Force colonel who was one of the analysts. You know, you have to remember that soldiers ask themselves and commanders simple questions. Why can the other side do anything they want, kill right and left and get away with it? Why are our hands tied? Sometimes commanders have to turn a blind eye to these terrible things because this is the only way to prevent a mutiny among soldiers, or often because they simply feel that way. And, moreover, remember that despite the Ryazan bombings and all that affair, because of all the situation, all the Russian public and Russian servicemen have accepted that this is basically war against terrorists, and this was a massive mess, because whether or not the bombings were organized by Chechens, they did commit acts of terrorism, but the bombings were also blitted on them, and then, you know, we have these studies of Russian soldiers doing these things, and the similar things being done by the Chechens, so the Chechen war turned into a massive, massive hate machine, the anger and rage of which I really couldn't explain in the chronology, to be honest. And here's another story. This one from Valery. Valery was a personal officer, what in Soviet times would have been called a commissar. At the time, he was a lieutenant colonel responsible for morale and discipline. He obviously shouldn't have spoken to the press, really. But uh, sometimes the night is dark and the beer is uh, tasty. Quote, In the Second War, the attitude towards the Chechens was much harsher. All of us were sick and tired of waging a war without results. How long can you keep making a fuss over national pride and traditions? The military realized the Chechens cannot be re-educated. Fighting against Russians is in their blood. They've robbed, killed, and stolen our cattle for all their lives. They simply didn't know how to do anything else. We shouldn't have even given them time to prepare for the next war. We should have slaughtered all Chechens over five years old and sent all the children that could be re-educated to reservations with barbed wire and guards at the corners. But where could we find teachers willing to sacrifice their lives to re-educate these wolf cubs? No such people. Therefore, obviously, we had to kill them all. Takes less time for them to die than to grow. Valery was in Chechen in the early phase of the war, where he stated that there was little oversight from the high command, and there were no pesky journalists. Now, the press set up a hall after the death of every Chechen. It's impossible to work in this atmosphere. How are we expected to fight the bandits in such circumstances? The solution, in fact, would have been very easy. The old methods used by Russian troops in the Caucasus in the 19th century. For the death of every soldier, an entire village was burned to ashes. For the death of every officer, two villages would be wiped out. This is the only way how you could exterminate this rogue nation. For political reasons, sadly, it was impossible to murder the entire adult population and send the children to reservations. But sometimes, you know, one can at least try to approximate such laudable goals. Oh yeah, and by the way, at that time, the Russian government offered to the fighters in Chechnya a hefty combat pay, which is, at the time, about 800 rubles a day, worth $20 per day. Meanwhile, at home, career soldiers and police earned only about $50 an entire month. That's an average wage, but even in Russia, didn't go very far at the time. And, uh, yeah, a lot of these people stated that the money is a powerful incentive for them. An ex-Aman officer stated that the worst thing is when a person went to Chechnya to make money. A person who does that 
should really have his head examined by a psychiatrist, for this person clearly has a propensity for sadism. And uh, I would like to finish this off from um, a part of the study by Abdul Itzlaev, who lived out the Second Chechen War in his native village, and um, he was trying to piece together everything that had happened, and and this is, um, again, quite difficult, and I won't be giving you his whole story, because that's a bit harsh. But once again, just imagine that all these atrocities could happen from both sides, really. Quote, Daybreak brought the sounds of combat from Goi Chu. The first news came a couple of hours later. Something odd was happening. People were leaving their houses. You could see from the wide junction, from the roadblock that soldiers had formed a semicircle around those people who'd managed to escape. According to two women who'd forced their way through the semicircle, residents were cajoled and threatened back into their homes. Towards evening, the denizens of Goichu had been convinced that the group of militants who had forced their way into the village were now neutralized and that the village itself swept clean. No need to worry. Federal forces were in control of the situation. The road to the village was completely blocked off. Neither Adam nor myself, nor indeed anyone, desperate to know if their relatives were still alive, were allowed access to the settlement. The din of the approaching battle floated in from Goichu throughout the night. Now, with the coming of morning, the village was being pounded by aerial and artillery strikes. Columns of military equipment were advancing through Goiskoye and their way to Goichu. At the crossroads between Alhazurova and Goichu, the carnage taking place in the latter was clearly visible. Shells and rockets were tearing houses to shreds and sending plumes of smoke and fire into the sky. Half a kilometer from the intersection on the outskirts of the village, a vast crowd of men, women and children had amassed in a field. They had been encircled, and no one was allowed to leave the encirclement or to approach it. Here, at the fork in the road, the Operations HQ had been set up in the military-occupied house of Visayev. Communicating through intermediary officers, residents of neighboring settlements attempted to persuade the generals to release the women and children from the encirclement. The generals, though, had other ideas. Towards lunchtime, we learned the names of the dozens of Goichu residents who'd failed to flee the village before the aerial and artillery strikes began. Then, after lunch, information filtered through that there was neither food nor warm clothing within the encirclement. People started putting together food packages in Goiskoye and El Hazurovo, and bread was brought over from Urusmartan. In a field next to the roadblock stood a battery of regimental mortars, as well as Buritino rocket launchers. They were fighting over the heads of the thousands of Goichu residents taken hostage by the military. These people's houses, all their possessions and the village itself, it was being destroyed before their own eyes. The slaughter went on for over two weeks. Abating at night, the intensity of the battles would reach a peak by noon. Having forced their way into the village from the south via the Gotinka River Gorge, the militants reached the northern outskirts almost immediately. They were negotiated with, and then, after a turning point in the situation, methodically finished off, alongside local residents who had not managed to flee the village in time. Corpses. There were many of them. So many, in fact, that even six months, even a year after, they wouldn't let me sleep. Images of wounds, faces, clothing kept flickering before my eyes. They were brought in, freshly searched, either by military personnel conducting a post-battle sweep, or else by the funeral team of the Ministry of Emergency Situations. 
clothes unbuttoned, pockets turned out, often shoeless. Each corpse was photographed and filmed. Dress, appearance, approximate age, possessions. All this was recorded. Their official papers rarely turned up, and these records were supposed to help identify them. And so, it frequently proved. Over half of the individuals committed nameless to the ground went on to acquire names. Some were identified immediately, and relatives would either take away the corpse or bury it here, alongside the others. It wasn't only the Chechens from settlements near and far who were searching for their own among the dead. One day a Russian general arrived. Quote, My intelligence operatives never left this village. I was informed that the corpses of some non-Muslims with wire-bound hands were brought here yesterday. Well, we haven't seen such corpses here. I'd like my guys to look at yesterday's corpses. Then they left their weapons in the vehicle, inspected a long row of dead bodies in the cemetery, and recognized not a single one. Nor it would have been easy to do so. Identifying familiar features of mutilated bodies crushed by rubble or lying for weeks under the open sky isn't a straightforward matter. Some, the charred ones, were completely unidentifiable. A bloody mess where the face should be, noses and ears cut off, throats slashed. There was not a single elderly face. So yeah, this is what you get when you turn war from um, kind of a controlled affair in a way from kind of some sort of civilized affair to something fueled by hate. And you can't get away with it either. And if you think about it, making sure war is fought in an organized manner, yeah, easier said than done. But there's a reason why Chechen war in the post-Soviet sphere is often regarded with just this pure shock and horror. Because the end of bloodshed is... Very important, because of all the atrocities and everything. And it's probably the most evil war that I've covered so far. Like I said, this episode was pretty difficult for me to make, and this is not one to be enjoyed, but this truly, I think, is amongst the bloodiest, bloodiest stories in all the post-Soviet history. До свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.